If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. His grip, if you like, on policy as well as the king personally was uh, something that um, was seemed almost total. And it was, it was James's vulnerability, if you like, to his, his sort of passionate, passionate engagement with his favourites and in particular George that shaped the way that the power was distributed in the court. That was Benjamin Woolley, who was talking to us about his new book on the relationship between James I and the Duke of Buckingham. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the author and broadcaster Benjamin Woolley, whose latest book, The King's Assassin, explores the powerful relationship between the Stuart King James I, or James VI in Scotland, and his favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, spoke to Benjamin about these two fascinating characters and the fatal conclusion to their friendship. So Benjamin, your new book is about George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, who was a controversial royal favourite of James I. Can you introduce us to this remarkable character and tell us a bit about his meteoric rise to um, power in James's court? Basically, I see my book as as um, a kind of biography of George, um, 
really. Uh, that was what uh, motivated me, was because I found him to be such uh, an interesting character. He, he had this kind of charisma over which he himself seemed to um, have sort of limited control. Um, I mean, he was one. He was described posthumously, uh, but by somebody who was alive at the time that he was alive, he was described as having um, a face to paint an angel by. Uh, he was so he was beautiful. It has to be said the portraits that there are of him, except for one um, chalk uh, sketch done by Rubens, uh, which was for a, a larger painting since lost. Um, the, the portraits don't seem to do him justice. Uh, there's, they're, 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 he, he clearly had a charisma that it was difficult to capture, but he obviously had it because all the um, contemporary records of the time confirmed that he had it. Um, and he himself didn't seem to know, almost fully understand the power that he he had, at least in the first years of, you know, when he became James's favourite. He came from um, an interesting background. His mother was a very powerful figure and remain and, and is throughout the story I'm trying to tell. Um, very influential on George and basically um, was trying to revive the family's fortunes, not only her own family's fortunes, but that of the of the Villiers clan. Um, and all of that was put at risk with the with the death, the the, the premature death you could say, of uh, George's father, Sir George, and um, probably of the plague when he was in London. Um, and she had to bring up this family uh, in straitened circumstances. And this is when her sort of resourcefulness and ambition took over. And she fashioned George into a creature of court, you could say. She actually brought him up to try and attract the attention of courtiers. I mean, she couldn't have imagined how successful she would be. But she launched this figure through various connections that she exploited into, into court. And he, he just dazzled. He had this uh, overwhelming effect on the court. Um, and at the, at the time that he was first introduced to court, he, um, the, James I or VI of Scotland, we've got to remember, of course, he, was, um, he has both uh, regnal numbers associated with him. Confusing. It's a nightmare for titles and things like that. But um, James, who uh, had come to the throne and brought a lot of Scottish courtiers with him, and the English courtiers of the Elizabethan era um, were um, concerned that they were being shut out. I mean, the, the one one courtier talked about the sort of beams, uh, the sunbeams of, of royal patronage being blocked off by all these uh, Scottish courtiers who were clustered around James. And they saw George this dazzling new figure as the instrument for um, bringing a sort of English presence back into James's uh, uh, inner circle. Um, and they succeeded abundantly. And he became this extraordinary, powerful figure in court who effectively um, took almost total control of it. And of course, the other main figure in this story, as you mentioned, is James the first and six. Can you give us a bit of an idea of what he was like at this time when George arrived at court? Well, he was uh, he he's called been called the Cradle King. Um, he was sort of, but he was basically born um, into uh, his monarchy in Scotland, but in the most bloody of circumstances. And he was a very he's he's a fascinating character, James. Um, very contradictory, uh, full of um, 
fears and apprehensions, but also somebody who sort of rather embraced life at the same time. Um, and he'd, he'd, with, with the death of Elizabeth in 1603, James arrived in London, um, obviously delighted to have inherited this much bigger and relatively richer um, kingdom. And it was a huge culture shock for the Elizabethan court. I mean, there was the change of gender, among other things, that, changed, that you know, had a substantial change on how people were expected to behave. Um, and James's court was seen as rather raucous and vulgar by the English. There was, um, uh, they adopted, in fact, rather French manners when it came to, for example, feasting, um, which was a much more public affair and would happen uh, in a way that some of the English considered, well, as I said, raucous, rather too boisterous. And James himself was a slightly, um, uh, he had certain sort of odd twitches and, well, in fact, disabilities. There'd been attempts to try and sort out what caused them. But one, for example, he, he spoke in a slightly odd way, not simply because for the English, a Scottish accent was unfamiliar, but his tongue was slightly too big for his mouth and he would dribble a lot and he would slurp a lot. And he um, he had a rather sort of ungainly way of walking around. And he was not what you would consider a princely or monarchical figure, but he was a very strong character. And um, he, uh, he came to sort of just change the whole culture of the court, turn it into something much more masculine, you could say. Um, and he surrounded himself by these young, attractive men who shared his bedchamber with him, which was the convention at the time. Um, and George came to be a central figure in this entourage. Can you tell us a bit more about how George and the King uh, first met and how their relationship developed? Well, they first they first met at um, this rather lovely country house uh, called Apethorpe in Northamptonshire. There was actually a plan which was implemented to introduce George to him then as a as a cupbearer, who was one of the sort of, uh, which wasn't just some, some, as somebody who was uh, serving drinks, um, but what was somebody who was specifically, you know, introduced to the king to sort of uh, entertain him and make the evening pass in a more pleasurable fashion. And at Apethorpe, George was it was sort of pushed out into the dining hall for a for a feast and um, uh, came into James's eye line, and he was very struck by uh, what he saw and a relationship which was carefully cultivated by George and all his um, uh, his English backers, if you like. There was a group of courtiers who were trying to get George, as it were, into uh, James's inner circle. Uh, George started through them started to cultivate this this growingly this increasingly passionate relationship which put him at odds with the current royal favorite who was a scot called robert carr or kerr as it's also pronounced and um the uh the a contest then began a bitter and and ultimate a, a bitter contest between carr and villiers which villiers um eventually won um, uh, leading to Carr's fall from grace and ending up imprisoned in the Tower of London. And how was this all received? Do we get any sense of um, attitudes towards 
towards James's preference for male favourites and their increasing um, role in the court from others in the court and the general public at the time? Well, yeah, I mean, the whole issue of James's attitudes to, to attitude to his male favourites is is subject to some controversy, but. Um, he he based and they were one of the ways that James was criticism was for having what were called his minions, um, which was basically uh, suggesting that he had some sort of homosexual um, affair with them, uh, and um, the actual nature of his of his affairs with these young men is difficult to um, work out, except. I found the relationship between George and James um, a fascinating one to try and find out about, to try and explore, because there was obviously a sexual element to their relationship. It's clear in uh, their writing, it's clear in in their writing of letters to each other. Um, Well, clear enough. Obviously, people were coy about this at the time. I mean, uh, James wrote very disapprovingly of the act of sodomy, which was itself a capital crime. So the actual nature of their physical relationship is one that's hard to work out on the basis of the evidence that there is, except that James had a passionate love affair with George. The nature of that love, from the way that it's written about by George, for example, uh, writing to James, writes about their in- this, this encounter in uh, Farnham Castle early on in their career, which I characterise as a kind of consummation. Um, and I think perhaps sexual consummation of that uh, of that uh, relationship. But what form that actually took, who knows? I'm not in a position to say because all that all that we have is George talking about um, specifically how uh, they, they uh, at that time didn't let the bedhead, as he put it, come between the king and George, who describing himself as the king's dog, which was one of the the. the uh, phrases that he uses. Um, So we have to interpret that as best we can. And there's been a lot of very good scholarship on this. Um, The scholarship of sexuality is something that's obviously a very lively issue at the moment. Uh, It was kicked off in the case of James by this important um, and fascinating book, uh, which was a collection of letters by this uh, American academic called Bergerung, called um, King James and the Letters of Homoerotic Desire. And it brought a new way of looking at these letters, which previously in in sort of Victorian and Edwardian uh, historians in particular had found difficult to gloss, if you like. They had found them difficult to interpret without um, writing about James in ways that were difficult to do at the time. But now it's much easier. However, we have to be careful because identity politics, as we understand it now, didn't exist then. So you wouldn't describe James as a homosexual, that I would have think, think would be an anachronistic. He had a wife, he had children. Um, it was more that part of James's makeup, part of his need and part of what George could provide was a physical as well um, as a um, formal or courtly bond between the two. And it was extremely important. That physical connection was extremely important to the relationship between the two, as it was between the relationships between lots of men at the time. So um, it's it's an intriguing and absolutely crucial aspect of the story um, of George's role in James's court. It was a widespread uh, understanding, you could say, at the time. Obviously, public attitudes are very difficult to know. But uh, among the sort of, if you like, the, 
the uh, levels of the gentry and the aristocracy. There was a lot of chatter in, in, that can be picked up in the correspondence of the time, which shows that there was um, an acceptance that there was a love affair that basically developed between uh, James and George, and a fear that what had happened is that George, by taking over the king's heart, if you like, had taken over his mind as well, and had become too powerful a figure. The same was thought of Robert Carr, his, uh, the, the predecessor as the royal favourite. But with James, there was such a strong bond. Uh, sorry, with George, there was such a strong bond between the two, between George and uh, James. Um, it started quite early on to cause alarm. Among, in, in fact, the courtiers, the very courtiers who had pushed George in front of James in the first place, in order to try and dislodge Carr and introduce an English um, favourite to the court. Uh, so um, th the sort of attitude was one of of sort of um, admiration for George almost because of what he had achieved, but considerable alarm at the influence that he uh, began to wield. And why was there such alarm at this? Why was George so unpopular? I, I mean, he's a polarising figure. That's why I, I think it's uh, how I would put him. And the alarm was as much to do with James as it was to do with George. In other words, there was concern, obviously, well, or particularly in Parliament, over the way that George was beginning to shape matters of political policy, uh, which wasn't a very stable thing at the time. So, well, it was stable in the sense that James had sort of completely altered foreign relations in, in England. But anyway, so the relationship between Britain and, if you like, the Habsburgs was one that was key to foreign policy. And James wanted to have a peace, wanted peace. He So all the stuff that had come up in the Great Elizabethan era, the Armada and so on, was changed to um, an attitude of cooperation and peace. Uh, and there was widespread concern about that. Now, George started to develop his own views on that and other absolutely key matters of, of foreign and domestic policy. Um, and uh, ultimately, in fact, he decided, and this is where the issue of James's demise comes into it, um, he decided, um, along with James's son, Charles, the heir to the throne, uh, to change that policy and actually set up um, Britain as part of a kind of league that would uh, challenge the domination of the Habsburgs through the Holy Roman Empire and Spain in um, on the continent. And that, as you can imagine, caused alarm because he was in a position to change that policy, apparently, because he was so close to James. So really, all the concern about George was not grounded in the fact that he had such an intimate relationship with the king and he was a man, but rather on the political power that it afforded him. The thing that's hard to conceptualise now is how intimate relationship of the personal and the political at the time. So um, in a sense, uh, George's relationships, sexual and um, romantic, if you like, his relationship with James was seen as um, part of the same uh, sort of power nexus that, that led to concerns about George's influence over matters of policy. Um, in, in a way, the problems wouldn't have been so great had George not had an opinion on the matter. That's absolutely true. If George had sort of kept his nose out of politics, um, that would have been, as it were, less of an issue 
with respect to George, the, you know, attitudes towards him at the time. But it wasn't really possible for George to do that because part of his role as the favourite, which was a semi-official role almost, you could say, was that he was that the the king gave him great patronage. So George, for example, controlled uh, the distribution of royal patronage offices, jobs, if you like, uh, jobs for the boys. Um, uh, to, uh, George was responsible for doing that on James's behalf. So you couldn't have any uh, role as a politician um, in the government of the time, in James's government, without being in George's good books. So um, his grip, if you like, on policy as well as the king personally was uh, something that um, was seemed almost total. And it was, it was James's vulnerability, if you like, to his, his sort of passionate, passionate engagement with his favourites and in particular George that shaped um, the way that, pol- that power was distributed in the court. And through all this, can we get a sense of what George was like as a man? Um, I mean, he was rather impulsive, but he can, and he was also uh, could be extremely arrogant. But one of the characteristics that was uh, I, I found sort of most fascinating about him is he was both uh, arrogant, but he was capable of incredible humility. Um, so he would disarm his critics quite often with these kind of humble responses to. Um, uh, criticisms of him. He would he would uh, confront his critics. He would answer their questions in public. He would go to well in public. I say he would go to Parliament and answer his critics there. He confronted them. At the same time, though, he could be um, he could be ruthless in dealing with people who he considered his enemies. So it's it's a world of extremes with George. Um, it's a very vivid. Um, it's a very vital kind of world. It's a world of life and death, remember, also because of uh, the stakes that there were. The ruination of people would, would be uh, total if they were ruined because of something they'd done to cross George. But at the same time, he could lift people um, out of obscurity and turn them into prominent uh, political figures just because he liked them or he thought that they were very capable people. So, I mean, for example, Francis Bacon, um, who is such an important figure of the era intellectually, he was um, he became sort of totally dependent on George for his career uh, at that stage. Francis Bacon was basically George's creature, and George manipulated him brilliantly, you could say, uh, to get the best out of him. So he was a manipulative figure. He was also a very candid figure. He was he could also be a very arrogant figure, and he could be a humble figure. So he was he's an extremely complex character. Something that your book grapples with is the idea that after James's death, a lot of contemporaries accuse George of having a hand in his demise, perhaps through poisoning. What conclusion did you come to on this and how did you reach it? Uh, very good question and uh, not easily answered. I, I, uh, I think it's almost certain that James, uh, sorry, that George had a, a, a hand in I, how can one put it? Helping James into the grave. Um, the the there is a, there isn't a conclusion to this issue. I think that though it it needs to be taken seriously. It's that the accusation of poisoning came from uh, Parliament. Basically, it wasn't just a matter of scurrilous gossip. It was seriously considered. There was um, a an in, a full uh, there was a proper parliamentary investigation calling witnesses, summoning the doctors in particular who were in James, who basically were in charge of James's uh, care in the final 
days of his life. Um, so these were serious charges, and what they really focused on on one thing, which upon which everyone agrees that George, uh, along with his mother Mary, um, this powerful figure in his life, uh, turned up at uh, James's sickbed while he was suffering um, about what was then called the tertian ague, which we would now call malaria, um, which was a, a chronic condition from which James had had had, um, had suffered several times throughout his life it lurks and then it rises up so he had a had he had a bout of fever and he seemed to be recovering from it um, and george at around this time uh, produced this medicine it was it came in two forms a potion um uh and a plaster in other words an impregnated strip of leather and these were applied to the king in the um at the time that he was recovering from the intermittent fevers that are the symptoms of malaria. And James subsequently suffered a catastrophic decline in his health. Um, I mean, what set me off on this journey is that I contacted a chap called John Henry, a remarkable, he was professor of accident and emergency medicine at Imperial, but a famous toxicologist. He was the person who, um, identified the radioactive polonium, for example, as the uh, as the poison used to kill the uh, Russian dissident Litvinenko, so, and uh, sent him basically the account of James's final hours, just asking what his thoughts were on the matter. Um, and he he didn't get back in touch with me. I, I assumed he was far too busy until some, several months later, I got a phone call out of the blue. And he basically thought that it was a, it was a case of poisoning um, he thought it was to do with the way that James's symptoms were described in the final hours. And those were symptoms being described by figures who didn't have a particular axe to grind, if you see what I mean. They were just simply witnessing James's final hours. And on that basis, he thought it was likely, he said, on the balance of evidence, uh, because it's not provable um, over that period of time. But he thought it was likely that, that the potion that had been used by George may have been a poison, a poison. He identified what it would be. He thought it was um, a, a poison well known at the time, aconite um, or monk's, monk's hood um, or wolfsbane. It's got various names, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a poisonous plant, if you like, and was well known. There were antidotes for it at the time for poisoning with aconite. Now, whether or not he did it was aconite, whether or not he did it on purpose or he just intervened in a rather candid fashion and managed to sort of speed up James's death, that we'll never know for sure. Um, but the and there were, for example, um, there were people who said that they tasted the plaster, which would tasted the potion used on the plaster and given to James orally. They tasted it beforehand. But it has to be said, the people who said that were the people who um, were speaking in defence of George. So uh, their testimony has to be considered, uh, uh, well, it has to be seen in that context. So um, uh, it, it, it seems to me that he was helping James, at least, into the grave. Um, and there's, you know, there were things George was saying at that time, because there were these great arguments that had broken out towards, over, for example, what Britain's policy should be towards Europe, um, that James was standing in the way of what George, together with the now grown-up Prince Charles, the heir to the throne, thought was the way forward as Europe itself was starting to enter into the crisis that would become the Thirty Years' War. So there's, I tried to sort of discuss the motive. Um, I tried to discuss the means. 
And my conclusion is that it's hard to completely dismiss uh, parliament, parliamentary concerns about what George did, his involvement in the final hours, without considering this as a possibility. When King Charles, Charles I, was holed up uh, on the Isle of Wight at the end of the Civil War, so this is 20 years after the events that I'm writing about, um, one of the first, the, you know, the parliament, which had won, you know, the parliamentarians had won the Civil War and they were wondering what to do with, with Charles, specifically what to charge him with. And the idea that, uh, that, uh, George was, uh, that Charles was involved with George in poisoning Charles's own father, James, was one of the accusations that came up first. They thought, could this be the grounds um, for uh, trying the king, putting the king on trial? And I think that that itself is one indication of the impact of the period that I'm writing about. So we're talking about the 1610s and 1620s. That was, in a, in a way, the seedbed of the Civil War. And I think that the story of George and his relationship with, with James um, was the, if you like, provided the, um, uh, the fertile environment in which the, uh, the seeds of Civil War could flourish. That was Benjamin Woolley. The King's Assassin, The Fatal Affair of George Villiers and James I, has just been published by Macmillan. Look out for a review of the book in our October edition, which will be on sale in a couple of weeks. Right now it's our September issue which is in the shops. This month's edition contains articles on Viking battles, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, Queen Victoria's turbulent marriage, medieval Europe's unholiest monk, and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good news agents and our many digital formats. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed and now it's time for this week's History News with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. A series of letters by Alan Turing have been discovered in a storeroom at the University of Manchester. 
a computer pioneer often credited with founding modern computer science, Turing's code-breaking work at Bletchley Park during the Second World War may have helped to significantly shorten the conflict and save thousands of lives. In 1948, he became the deputy head of Manchester's computer library. The BBC reported that the cache of 147 letters was found by Jim Miles of Manchester's School of Computer Science, who discovered the letters while tidying up the room. Miles explained that the documents may not have been seen for more than 30 years and was astonished that they had remained hidden for so long. The archive includes insight into Turing's research at the university, including artificial intelligence and mathematics. The letters are believed to span from 1949 to 1954, when, following a charge for, quote, gross indecency and undergoing enforced hormone treatment, Turing was found dead. He was ruled by a coroner to have taken his own life. Turing was given a posthumous royal pardon in 2013. The letters have now been sorted and catalogued by the university and will be further examined by Turing scholars. In other news, scientists inspecting a group of 1,500-year-old manuscripts found in a monastery in Egypt have found evidence of languages not seen for over a 1,000 years. New techniques involving the photography of documents using different parts of the light spectrum and a computer algorithm have allowed scientists to see the writing that was first laid down on the parchments before words were later scrubbed off and replaced. The manuscripts, discovered on the site of St Catherine's Monastery on the Sinai Peninsula, include languages such as Caucasian Albanian, which were hidden from the naked eye. Michael Phelps from the Early Manuscripts Electronic Library in California told The Times that the age of discovery is not over and the new techniques will be applied to previously discovered manuscripts that, quote, have been right under our noses. Meanwhile, a blockhouse in Hull commissioned by Henry VIII is to be excavated. The structure, built in the 16th century to house ammunition and gunners to defend the city, was one of three forts originally linked by a wall to protect Hull and its port. New trenches will uncover a series of three-foot-high walls, the remains of the building planned by the Tudor monarch. Ken Steedman of Humberfield Archaeology told the BBC that it's hoped the excavations will allow people to see the partial remains during Hull's time as the UK's 2017 City of Culture. There are plans to display the remains of the full site in future. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Monday, where we'll be discussing the Vikings. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.